Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. The story of Christmas teaches us that God can do anything, that God's not limited by the things that we're limited by. He's not held captive by our limitations, by our mistakes, um, or by the things that stop us, the same processes that work for us that we are slaves to. God's not a slave to those processes. And so it, it would be awesome if we could just jump into 2018 with a sense of expectancy that God's going to do something. Instead of getting in the same cycle of every year is kind of going to be the same as the year before it, I believe God wants to do something new. And so in order to sort of prove that to you today, I want to look at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. So if you haven't got your Bible reading in for the day, you're going to get it in right now. And uh, it's going to be awesome. This is the chapter you always skip over in your Bible um, because it's full of boring, it's a big, long, boring genealogy. And so um, I thought, you know, I kind of had to make up for the exciting worship and just make the sermon extra boring for you today. So we're going we're to go extra boring into the boring genealogies. I know you guys are like, oh, Yay, that's awesome. Glad I chose this Sunday. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, we're going to check it out. But actually, I believe that God puts everything in his scripture for a purpose and for a reason. And so I'm going to dig into this uh, genealogy a little bit and um, hopefully uh, enable you to see how God can do anything through anyone. God can do anything through anyone. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1 starts off, look at the way Matthew titles his gospel. He doesn't say, this is the gospel of Matthew. That's what we call it. He doesn't call it that. He calls it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Obviously, this genealogy is pretty important to Matthew. He apparently thinks that his entire gospel is primarily about the next words that he writes in chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's what he calls his gospel. It is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's his introduction of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And now we get into the genealogy. Uh, verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac uh, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. All right, on to verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by um, Tamar. That's interesting. By Tamar. We're going to look at all of the bys. There's a few bys in this, uh, in this passage. Uh, he's, he's mainly talking about the fathers because that's the way the ancient Hebrews used to reference their genealogy. But occasionally he throws in a couple of ladies. And every time he throws in some ladies, it means there's an interesting story going on. Uh, but uh, it says, father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of uh, that guy, and then that guy has a kid named Nashon, and Nashon was the father of the color salmon. Um, not salmon, but salmon. And he was the father of Boaz, you might have heard of him, by this lady, Rahab, not Rehab, Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by this lady, you may have heard of her, Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, not a king, even though there was, there was a king before David and several after him. Matthew references David as the king. And David was the father of Solomon by 
the wife of Uriah. There's another lady. Uh, verse 7 says, Solomon was the father of Rehobim, some other guy. And he's the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asaph, who wrote some fables. Just kidding. And Asaph was the father of Jehosa the fat. And uh, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Everybody still awake? All right, good. We're still, we're still rolling through. I'm reading fast. This is good. This is quick reading. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah. I don't know if you like to underline in your Bible, but I would underline Jeconiah if I were you, because he's the character I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, he was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the de deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of El uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Verse 15, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of uh, Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Verse 17 ties this whole thing together in case you fell asleep while we we're reading the rest. He summarizes it for us. Matthew summarizes it. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I'm big into football, so I like to see this as the four quarters. The four quarters of, of God's plan of salvation. You have the quarter with Abraham. Right? And instead of 15 minutes, we got 14 generations. So it's close. It almost had 15 minutes. But 14 generations from Abraham to David. And I kind of like to see these different quarters of a football game as like these different um, captains. These are the quarterbacks um, for team Team Yahweh. Uh, uh, we got Abraham. He's the quarterback for the first quarter. He does pretty good. I don't know if you heard of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. He actually didn't have many sons. He only had couple of sons. Um, he had many grandsons and great, great, great grandsons, I guess, but the song doesn't sound as great as Father Abraham had a couple of sons. But uh, Father Abraham had a couple of sons, and he's known as the father of the faith, um, really to Christians, um, also to Jews, and also to Muslims. Uh, all three of these faiths all find their origin in Father Abraham had many sons. He's the father of the faith. And in, 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 the, in the Christian Bible and in the Jewish Bible, uh, Father Abraham believes God. Like he's the first guy that God shows up to him and says, hey, I want to make you great. And I want to bring really basically the Messiah through your family. And he said, your, your, your name will be great and your descendants will be like the sand on the sea, like the stars in the sky. You can't even, we won't even be able to count all of the family that you're going to have. God makes wonderful promises to Abraham, and Abraham does pretty good in the fourth, in the first quarter. First quarter quarterback, you know, he didn't, he didn't have any turnovers. Uh, he didn't fumble the ball at all. He, he got, he, he got some first downs and even a couple of touchdowns. Abraham was a great uh, leader of the first quarter 
of the, the salvation history. And then we come to David. David is the next quarterback for the second quarter of human history and the history of salvation. And, and he does pretty good. He's a man after God's own heart. He starts off, he starts off pretty hot. Uh, you know, he's got, a, he's got a passer rating of about 130. I mean, he's killing it, you know. Uh, he's like, he's like, hey, he's kind of like Matt Stafford last night. Somebody give it up to the Lions, um, you know, doing some stuff out there. He's, 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 David's, David's a great man of God. He's a man after God's own heart is what God calls him. Uh, he has faith in God, belief in God. He follows God. He sacrifices for God and he does well. And then, and then he has a, well, he has a, he has a pick six. Uh, he has an interception. He, he, he sleeps with another man's wife. If we go back to the genealogy, actually the Bible doesn't hide this, um, even though I'm sure David's descendants would have liked to have sort of glossed over this little significant fact. Um, when we're looking back at the genealogy, I think it's verse 5, uh, verse 6, we find that Jesse was the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, right? And it could have just ended it right there. David was the father of Solomon. Go on. Solomon's the father of... No, instead the Holy Spirit gives us this little detail. By the... I, I, I said, you got to look out for all, all the ladies that are in this thing. You got you to you you watch when, they, when he starts talking about by the wife of David. No, that's Uriah's wife as opposed to David's wife. Um, and that is the truth. David was following God. He was believing in God. He was obeying God. And then he saw a beautiful woman and he had adultery with her. And not only did he have adultery with her, he also arranged for her husband to be killed. His name was Uriah. God makes sure to include Uriah's name in the genealogy um, because she was actually the wife of Uriah. Now this is embarrassing for David because he had such a great second quarter. But man, on the, 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 the two minute warning, he's driving on the field and he gets an interception and is taken to the house. It's a bad play. He really, he really messed up. Uh, Aaron really messed up. Uh, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't do so good. And, uh, uh, and this is not, God doesn't say that this is okay. This kind of behavior is not all right. Um, but God includes it in here so that you and I can know that these people, while they were great people of faith, they were also humans who made mistakes just like you and me. And that's why I feel like this whole chapter, Matthew chapter 1, really teaches us that God can do anything through anyone. God's not always using those who are most righteous. God's not always using those who are most qualified. God's not always in the habit of using those who are most perfect or who make all of the right decisions. We have David here who clearly is having a son by the wife of somebody else. This is not okay. And yet he is the second quarter quarterback for Team Yahweh on the Salvation Bowl. I'm making this up as I go along. Um, but the third quarter, uh, if we go back to verse 17, he says, he says, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to a guy by the name of Jeconiah. And he doesn't even mention him here. He just says the deportation. When you go back in the verses, you see that Jeconiah was the king during the deportation. 
Really, it's it's almost as if the writer, it's almost as if Matthew just doesn't even want to mention his name. Like, instead he mentions what happened under his reign. This is when the wheels fell off. This is the third quarter of the football game. This is the third quarter quarterback, and he really, if David kind of, you know, made a bad play, this guy really messed it up. I mean, this guy completely lost the game. You know, you know, you can lose the game in the third quarter, right? Jay Cutler, that's right. Bears fans have known this for years. You can lose the game. Last, the last service I picked on Cowboy fans today, I'm, now I'm picking on Cutler. Yeah, Cutler, man. Classic, classic example. You don't know if it's good Cutler or bad Cutler. But he's not going. either one's not going to last all game. You know, there's going to be a little bit of both. Man, you can lose it in the third quarter. If you bury, if you get buried enough, I mean, there's only so much, you know, you can come back from in the fourth quarter. You can, you can completely, the wheels can come off in the third quarter. And that's what happened, obviously, uh, here. They got carried away to Babylon. By the way, at the time of this writing, they still had not come out from under captivity. In fact, they didn't come out from under captivity until like the 1940s, uh, when 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 Israel was recognized as a, as a sovereign state. They they were they were constantly pawns of other bigger powers in the region. I mean, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the most recent, but then also you know the the, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Romans, then the Greeks. I mean, they were const they they never had sovereignty again after this moment. The writer, uh, Matthew, is sitting down. He's writing about the deportation, and he doesn't even have to really go into detail. Every Jew knows about that fateful moment. It was, it was, it was, it was the biggest bad play of all of history. And God really outlines really his, his, his anger against Jeconiah. If you, if, you, if you want a fun read, go home and read Jeremiah 22. It's positive and encouraging. You're not going to read about it in K-Love. They're not going to read it on one of those little segments, you know. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of depressing because God just goes off on this guy, Jeconiah. He calls him a couple different names, and I don't quite know why exactly. Yeah, he calls him Coniah, and then he calls him Jeconiah. But anyway, I want to look at 22 verse 30. Thus says the Lord, speaking of Jeconiah, write this man down as childless. Now he had kids, but God's like, they don't count. God is so done with Jeconiah, with the royal line of David, with, because he goes, he, he, he talks about how generation after generation, they continually followed after other gods. They continually propped up other idols and, and worshiped them. And you say, well, we would never do that. But that's actually what we do a lot. We prop up other things in our lives and we bow down and worship them. And God's constantly saying, like, what are you getting out of that when you worship that thing? What, what is that thing giving you? Well, it's giving you addiction. It's giving you depression. It's giving you anxiety. It's like you serve these things for nothing. And that's what God's constantly saying. It's like, I'm here. If you'll serve me, you were created to worship. So you are going to bow down before something. We are all created to worship. So we're all going to be obsessive about something. Right? We're, we're, we're all going to be nuts about something. We're all going to be madly head over heels about something. Because we're created to be that. That's just how God made us to be head over heels for him. To be um, dazzled, you know, by his glory. But the problem is, whenever we've rejected the one and true living God, then, honestly, the enemy just kind of comes along with a thousand other options. A thousand other things 
And he knows that we're going to, he's, he's not even a good salesman because he doesn't have to be because we've already rejected the one and true living God. So now it's like, well, just pick your poison, whatever you want to worship. Go ahead, worship this, worship fame, worship uh, family, worship finances. I got the F's going on. I don't know. Worship all the, it's like, you know, just, just choose whatever you want to devote your life to and get worship power, worship uh, political power, worship uh, influence, worship uh, uh, money, worship position, worship whatever you would like to worship, even worship ministry if you like. Like, like, like the enemy can just bring forth all this. He, he's, he's got like a Walmart, you know, of options. But he's not even that good of a salesman because he doesn't have to be because he knows we're not going anywhere because we rejected the one thing we were created to worship. And all these other things, the kickback you get, Romeo, Romeo and I were talking about that a few weeks ago. The, 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 what, like, why are you worshiping this alcohol? Why are you giving your life and your family for it? Is it really worth it? No, it's not worth it. Why are you worshiping uh, this, 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 this self-hate? Is it really worth it? Is it giving you anything? No, it's just giving you more and more anxiety, more and more depression. But we, but we, we have, when, when, when we have rejected the one and true living God, then we bow before all these other altars. And that's what was happening with, with David's lineage. I mean, they were just, they were propping up all these different things to worship because they were created to be worshipers. And finally, God had had enough. And God said about Jeconiah specifically, he said, write this man down as childless, this man shall not succeed in his days. None of his offspring will succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling ever again in Judah. It's done. God said, it's, it's done. It's over. I finally, I finally have had enough of this family of David. And no one, no son of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne of David ever again. Now this presents a, a, a theological problem because, because in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 89, if we have that verse, God had promised David actually. God had spoken to David and he said, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed or your offspring, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now this, he's obviously not talking about a particular human, right? I mean, nobody's going to live forever and reign forever. This is a, a prophecy about the Messiah coming through David's family line. In fact, when you read more of the Psalms, David says this is his most treasured possession. The promise that God gave him that his son, somewhere down his lineage, his royal son would sit on his throne and establish it forever. And we see this echoed time and time again throughout scripture. I mean, even when, even when the angel appeared to Mary and said, hey, um, don't be afraid. I bring you great tidings of, of great joy and, and, and you'll call his name Jesus and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. I mean, yeah, everybody knew. This was very clear. God had made a promise to David. His son was going to reign forever. And they were excited about it. That's why they knew that, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem because that was the city of David. And so it, all, all of this makes perfect sense. But the problem is, right, God tells David this, your seed I will establish forever and to build up your throne to all generations. But then, but then 14 generations later, like the second quarter was going great. But then the third quarter is such a disaster that at the end of the third quarter, God benches Jeconiah 
and actually the entire Jewish population, they go off into captivity. And now one of the biggest theological conundrums is, wait a minute, I thought God said that it was going to be David's son that was going to rule forever, and now God says, no more of David's sons. <laughs> I've had enough of David's sons. So how, how is God going to be able to fulfill his promise in the middle of such a disastrous performance? And that's not just a theological question. I think that's also a very personal question that you have probably thought in your quiet time that you've probably wondered about. How can God fulfill his promise in, in spite of my performance? In my disastrous third quarter, in my life, how is it that God can fulfill? Yeah, I believe God can do anything. Yeah, I believe God does miraculous things all the time. Like for Pastor Harry, he finds like his emerald and that's awesome. But you know, like what about like in, in, in my life? I don't know, has anybody ever felt cursed? <laughs> Have you ever felt? It's like you're just cursed. And this is, by the way, I mean, Jeconiah is cursed. Like, it's clear in Jeremiah 22. I mean, you don't get more cursed than Jeconiah. If you read the rest of the, the previous part of this chapter, God is so ticked at Jeconiah. He says, look, if, he says, if you were a signet ring on my finger, a signet ring is the, is the ring that a king wears and it's got a stamp on it, it's his seal. He said, if you were my signet ring, I would take you off and throw you out of my house. <laughs> like, he said, and he said, actually, he said, I'm going to throw you and your mama into a foreign country. He actually said your mother, but whatever. He said, I'm going to throw you and your mother into a, I mean, God is done. There's no, you, there's, no, there's no phone a friend. There's no, you know, I mean, it's done. Time is up. Third quarter is over. You have failed massively and judgment has come to Jeconiah's house. God takes sin seriously, by the way. God takes these things seriously. God, when you, when you read Jeremiah 22, God starts laying out all the things. Jeremiah is shedding innocent blood. Jeremiah is worshiping false idols. Jeremiah is leading the people astray. Jeremiah is leading his family astray. Uh, Je Jeconiah is doing all of these things. He's leading his family astray. He's shedding innocent blood. I mean, he's doing things that he knows are wrong. And God says, I, you know, I've been, I've been putting up with this for, for 14, 13 generations. This is number 14 and it ends here. Jack and I actually only reigned, I think, for like three months. God was, God was done. And then they go into captivity. And Babylonia is not a nice place uh, to be a captive. They invented torture. They came up with all kinds of uh, plucking people's eyes out and cutting their tongues out and cutting their ears off uh, just to humiliate those that they had captured. Not a, not, a, not a vacation. It wasn't even a nice cell. These people were, were plunged into, into one of the most barbaric cultures. They were, they were taken from their homeland. And suddenly it seemed as if God's promise was never going to come to pass. Uh, I don't know if you ever read the book of Lamentations. It's, uh, it's a real joy. If you ever get, it's, uh, the, 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 the title gives you a clue. Lamentations. That's a lament. That's a cry. The whole thing. 
is meant to be read while crying. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, uh, whenever there's a funeral, the only scriptures you're allowed to read are the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. By the way, Jeremiah wrote both of them, and he's called the weeping prophet. There are only like three verses in the whole book of Lamentations that are all positive. The, whole, the rest of it is misery, doom and gloom, the sky is falling, we're over with, we're done. This is awful. God hates us. He actually says that God has use us as target practice and he's firing little rockets at us you know it's, it's actually a fun read I think but you know but it's like it's it's that's that's during that time that's the time that God was done that's the time when God cursed them that's the time when God took his hands off and said you know what devil just go ahead <laughs> they 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 want to serve you go for it and they were left to their own devices and they couldn't defend themselves they couldn't fight for themselves and they were done that's why when Matthew is writing, he just has to mention the time of the deportation, just like we would just mention the Holocaust, and we all know exactly what that means, because it has such graphic visual uh, images just imprinted on our memory. The same thing for the Jews when he says the deportation. And yet for them, unlike the Holocaust, this was a direct result of their sin, and everybody knew it. God made it very clear through the prophet Jeremiah that Jeconiah jacked up <laughs> jacked up Jack and I he, he, he like it's his fault like this guy his family that's why all this is happening now how would you like to be the descendant of Jeconiah growing up your, 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 your name's Harry Jeconiah how would you like how would that work <laughs> uh, that's what Joseph grew up in like like many of us don't really understand the cultural context Joseph was a son, a direct son of Jeconiah. He grew up with a target on his back, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like everybody's looking sideways at him. Everybody's giving him an extra bump in the hallway with their shoulders. I mean, because it's because of him and his family that, that they're in the place and the position that they're in. And Joseph grows up under this knowledge not, not just the hunch that he's cursed, but no, an actual knowledge that he actually is cursed. His family, his lineage is never going to be able to be used of God. Nothing good can come out of Jeconiah's kids. He grows up with that. That's why I think maybe Joseph could relate to some of us that feel cursed. Joseph could relate because he grew up actually being cursed. And it was, to, it was to Joseph, it was to this cursed one that God shows up. Because I think God is constantly trying to teach us throughout Scripture that he can do anything. Yeah, but he can do anything through anyone. That it is those who are oftentimes most unqualified that God uses to do the unexpected. He loves to take those who are unqualified to do the unexpected. He loves to show up on the scene and take people who are unable to, to do anything for themselves, who feel like they're constantly failing, who just cannot get it right. He loves to appear to those people because when he does that, then he gets the glory for everything that is done. And people don't recognize how awesome uh, Joseph is. People hardly ever talk about Joseph when they talk about the Christmas story. He's like the forgotten character, you know? He's one of the main characters. But, 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 but it's so God that gets the focus 
That's why I love that video of, of, of our widow last week who was uh, happy about the house being built in Rwanda, you know? She just said, this is a sign that God is adding value to me, that God sees me, that God cares for me. And that's wonderful. I don't care if she remembers our church name or not. I want, I want God to get the glory. I want some unqualified, <laughs> some messed up people because God, it's amazing how God can use our mess. Now I'm not saying like we should all go out and try to be as messy as possible because <laughs> that doesn't turn out well. But God can use our mess to bring the miraculous out of it, to bring his power out of it. He shows himself so strong through people who are far less than perfect. They're unqualified. They're not necessarily righteous. And Jeconiah is the one who just blows it in the third quarter. Now the fourth quarter is Christ. Christ is our fourth quarter quarterback. But the, the great question is how? Like, like, how is God going to do this? Because I think many of us can believe, yes, God can use our mess. God can bring something good out of it. But how exactly does he do this? Well, when we look uh, in scripture, we're not going to put it up on the screen, but in Luke chapter 3, there's another genealogy of Jesus. And uh, it, reads, it reads like this. It says, now this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, who was supposed to be of Joseph. All right? In other words, everyone thought Joseph was his dad, but technically he was not his dad but he was his adopted dad. And then he starts giving this genealogy, who's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, but it's very different from the genealogy here in Matthew until it gets to David, at which point David's father's the same, David's grandfather's the same, great-grandfather. So most scholars believe that, that the genealogy found in Luke is not the genealogy of Joseph, but the genealogy of Mary. That because in the ancient times you couldn't list a woman as the key uh, 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 father of the child, the, he, he listed Joseph and then just read off Mary's ancestry. And when you look at Mary's ancestry, when you look at Mary's genealogy, you see that she is also a son of David, daughter of David. That Jesus fulfills the promise of being a son of David by being born of Mary. That Mary is not the royal line. She's not from the firstborn. She's not from the royal lineage. She's not from Jeconiah. But she's from another. She's from the thirdborn son of David. A guy by the name of Nathan. And, she's, and she is a descendant of the not so royal line. David had other kids. And so in that way... God did fulfill his promise by, by impregnating, through the Holy Spirit, impregnating Mary. She is technically an offspring of David. And so technically, God fulfills his promise through Mary, that in Jesus' veins flows the blood of David through Mary. But God's not just interested in technically fulfilling his promises. God is interested in bringing about redemption in people's lives. He didn't just want to technically fulfill his promise. He wanted to redeem the cursed line of Jeconiah. He wanted to bring them back into the place that he had promised them. Because he did promise David that it would come from his royal lineage. That his, the son of his would sit on his throne. And so he has to be royal. And that's where Joseph comes in. When we read the rest of Matthew, uh, going on to verse 18, uh, we see that, 
The birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling uh, to put her uh, to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. Now, why would he divorce her quietly? if she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a good thing, right? Well, yeah, it does sound like a good thing, but the problem with people who have lived under a curse is that even when they get good news, they can't believe it. You know, so, so she comes to Joseph. Joseph, I know this is really strange, but an angel appeared to me, and I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. And Joseph says, that is strange, and that's impossible because I can't be the father of the Messiah. And don't you know great-grandfather jacked up Jeconiah? <laughs> Jack, Jack, Jeconiah, the, the Mesa. Don't you remember that? I mean, like, I can't. There's, sometimes our preconceived ideas about ourselves limit what we have capacity to believe God for. We cannot believe that God could possibly do this because, well, you know who I am. You know where I come from. You know my history. You know my past. And so it doesn't work that way. And he, and, and, and man, how many times do we divorce ourselves from the very thing that God's trying to bring into our life to fulfill his promise because we cannot have the faith to believe in it because we doubt ourselves so greatly. And that's what, that's what this whole Anything Can Happen sermon series is about, is lifting your eyes off of yourself and off of your limitations and off of your past. And understanding that those things, yeah, they're real and they do have real consequences and they do have real life. Con I mean, look at Jeconiah. It had real consequences, but that is not something that God cannot redeem. That God can do anything through anyone. He can take you and your past. He can take you and your mistakes. He can take you and your, and your problems and he can still fulfill his promise through you. And so got, you got to be careful. You got to be careful not to divorce the very thing that God is trying to bring into your life. So many times people run away from Christian community because they, they are so afraid that if people really get to know them, then they'll see that they're really not that great of a person. And so even when they're in connection with a good church, they'll run away from the good church because they get scared. They won't be able to keep up the charade. And they divorce themselves from the very thing that God sent into their life to let them know how accepted and how loved and how welcomed they really were. And that's what, that's what the curse will do. When it hangs over your head all of your life, you start believing it so much that you even reject what God is bringing into your life because it goes in conflict with what you believe about yourself. And Joseph says, this can't be, I cannot be the father of the Messiah. I mean, this is not going to work. And so he's going to divorce her. He's thinking about these things. He goes to sleep. And an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David. <laughs> I love how he didn't say Joseph, son of Jeconiah. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Fear will cause us to divorce what God's bringing into our life. He says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's almost as if God is speaking about the entire population, 
But he's also speaking very much to Joseph. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Sins are, one, things we've done in the past. And they, they, they keep us trapped in shame. And God says, look, Joseph, this Jesus is going to save from, away from the clutches of shame. But not only is it things we've done in the past, but it's, it's this thing inside of us right here in the present that causes us to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Right? So, so that the curse is not just shame from the past, but it's fear of, well, I don't think I'll be able to, to live up to the hype. I don't think I'll be able to live up to the expectations. And God says, no, no, he will save his people from, from the shame of the past and from the, the, the pull of the present. And from that thing inside of you that is, that is drawing you constantly to believe that you are cursed. That is drawing you constantly to live as if you are cursed. He says, look, he will save his people from their sins. Away from, out of, completely removed. And all of this took place, he says, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he didn't know her until she had given birth to a son. And that's when he called his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. He, he, he began to see this Savior who would save him. There's an interesting prophecy in Isaiah. I think it's chapter 9, verse 6 where the, the prophet says, speaking of Jesus, he says, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now, of course, that is uh, Hebrew poetry. He's, he's, he's saying the same thing twice, but he's actually bringing in deeper meaning with each time he says it. So, unto us a child is born. He's speaking of Mary. The child was born unto Mary. Mary gave birth. And that's one side of the promises of God. Sometimes you just have to push the thing out. It's painful. It's a process. But you got to give birth to some things. But then he says, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Here he's speaking about Joseph. Joseph was not worthy to produce the Messiah. He was cursed. He could not produce the Messiah. But, but he was given the Messiah. And so he had to receive. And this is the hardest thing for self-made people. The hardest thing for people who have lived under a curse mentality, always feeling like they have to prove themselves. The hardest thing is to say, I receive this son. Can you imagine Joseph is there in the stall. Mary gives birth to the son of God. And she hands him off to Joseph. I remember with Madden, I was like, I probably shouldn't hold her because I don't know what to do. And she might fall because she weighs like nothing, you know. And, uh, 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 and that, that, that was just Madden of Fleming. Um, <laughs> the Fleming. <laughs> but this is Jesus the Christ. This is 
the son of God. And Mary says, okay, well, you got to name him because it was the, the husband who always had a name. And he had to take him in his arms. He had to receive him. Talk about feeling unworthy. Talk about feeling like you're in over your head. Talk about feeling like you're, this, this moment is too big for you. He's holding the son of God. He had to receive him. God could have fulfilled his promise just by impregnating Mary, having her give birth to the son of David. But God wanted to redeem the curse. He wanted to bring back an entire generation, an entire lineage of people for whom they thought it was over because of their mistakes. To, I think to prove to every Jeconiah and Joseph down through history that no matter how far you have fallen, God still wants to trust you with his son. He still wants you to carry something of such weight and of such significance. He can do anything through anyone, including you. And Joseph reaches out his hands and takes a baby in his hands, a baby that he could never produce, but he could receive. <laughs> and that's what salvation is. It's receiving what you could never produce. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. And honestly, that's not just salvation, initial salvation to put your faith in Jesus, but that is, that's, that's all along the way. That's all a life. Even just uh, yesterday, I was traveling. I'm getting ready to close. This is my closing story, very inspirational. Um, get ready to be inspired. I was, uh, I was traveling uh, up to Michigan for my sister's um, pinning. She uh, was graduating nursing school, and she's becoming a nurse. And so that was Friday night. So I flew out Thursday. Uh, me and Peter, actually. That's why Pete and Jaleesha aren't here. They're still up in Michigan. Um, they stayed a little bit longer. And so we, we flew up. Uh, Pete and I flew into De uh, Detroit, got a rental car, um, stayed at mom and dad's house. And then we drove up because my sister went to school in Sault Ste. Marie. I don't know if you guys know where Sault Ste. Marie is. It is about as far away from Texas as you can get and still be in America, I think. I mean, it is the very tippy top, as they would say, of Michigan. I mean, you, you have to go over the Mackinac Island Bridge. It's, they, they have a Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and a Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. That's how, I mean, it's right there on the border of Canada, as far north as you can get. We're driving up there, and it's a blizzard, like, the whole way. I mean, it was, I was thinking, man, these Texans don't know nothing about this. I mean, I was driving, I looked like I got a Jeep, you know, and I was cruising on that. But I mean, it was like, it was, it was, it was we had, they got six inches like the night before. And I don't know how many inches we got. Well, just while I was driving up there and, um, you know, it was zero degrees yesterday, for instance, when I woke up there, um, it's cold. And all I have is this, this biker jacket. And anyway, I got a hat and I'm trying to stay warm. And so I, we're, we're driving up there. We had a, had a great time. Um, you might've saw the little video I put on Facebook of hilarious waitress who is not supposed to be, you think she's the kind supposed to be rude to you, but she's not. She's just rude. Anyway, it was funny. I just couldn't stop laughing. So I videoed her because she was hilarious. But anyway, we had, a, we had a great time. My sister graduated, yada, yada, yada. And then yesterday, all right, Saturday, I have to drive down. We, we all drive down six hours down through Michigan to Detroit airport because I got to catch a plane, get here. I landed at like 1230 last night. I got home around 1 a.m. last night and then came in here to help set up and everything because I, I want to be back with you all because I feel like that's part of my calling to 
to bring the word that God's put on my heart about Joseph and Jeconiah. And so, you know, I'm driving six hours down there. I get to the airport, yada, yada, yada. I'm waiting at my gate. And there's this, there's this little shop, uh, this little uh, like sandwich shop there in the Detroit airport in the D terminal. And I go in there and I get, uh, there's this older guy in front of me. He orders a ham and, ham and Swiss. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds pretty good. It was, you know, it was only like a thousand dollars. It was the cheapest one they had. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take the ham and Swiss too. And so he and I get the ham and Swiss. And then lo and behold, like he goes down to my gate. I didn't even know. He goes to my D, D30 was my gate. And so we're sitting there. He's talking to, he, he has an elderly wife with him and he's talking to her. I'm watching uh, the Lions uh, beat up on Chicago. Come on, somebody. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a good game. And uh, I ate, have my sandwich. I didn't eat the whole thing. And just kind of put the rest of my bag, thinking about saving it for later. We get on the plane, and seriously, like, this flight was the worst flight I've ever had in my life. And that actually is saying something, because I've, I've flown a lot. I mean, I don't know how many hours I've been in, in, in private planes and uh, commercial planes. I mean, that was my job for a while. And so I've been on a number of flights, and this was, like, the worst flight I've ever Ben, I sit down and uh, I get out my laptop because I need to work on the sermon, figure out what I'm going to say to you guys. I start typing some things and then there's a baby right behind me and he's screaming, you know. And uh, I don't know if that's ever happened to you where you sit down, you got to work on something, study something or sleep on a plane and there's a screaming child. And I'm thinking, oh man, this is just my luck. This is, this is awful. You know, I'm not going to get anything done. And so we, we, we take off and uh, we get up in the, the air and, and right uh, five, ten minutes in, baby kind of slows down, stops crying a little bit. I'm thinking, yes, thank you, Jesus. All right, no more screaming, baby. And then all of a sudden, uh, the, the older couple, I noticed like they're sitting in the seats right in front of me. This older couple is sitting right there. I'm like, oh, okay. And well, the, the, the lady presses the button, the call button for the stewardess to come. And she's like, my husband just vomited in the barf bag. And I'm like, oh man. So I like get my, my face under my shirt. Cause, cause that's the most dangerous time. If you didn't know it, but to catch a stomach bug, that, that, that's how you catch it. If you're in the proximity of somebody vomiting, pretty much their saliva or all the stuff that goes into the air. So I'm like, oh man, I gotta, gotta get this under, I cannot get sick, you know? And so I'm right behind him and I'm, you know, obviously praying for him cause I care about his soul. But in the meantime, I'm praying for myself, like, Lord, keep me from this. I don't want it. Somewhere. And uh, anyway, he proceeds to keep, like he's throwing up like the whole time. And uh, he's like, well, I at one point, he runs out of bags. They're like, he, like he, he's gonna, he's gonna blow. Get him another bag. You know? He's like, there's all this stuff everywhere. And then, like halfway through, like there's there's diarrhea that hits, and I didn't see it, but I could hear it and smell it, and it was. It was awful. And I got my face like buried in my shirt the whole time. I'm just like, dear Jesus, just get me on the ground. Just get me on the ground. And we had a layover, right? We had to go all the way over to North Carolina. And so it's just the worst flight ever. We land. They, we had to land on a tarmac. They brought medical personnel because the guy was like passing out. He was an older guy. He was like fainting, you know? And so they, they're, they're trying to get him out. He's vomiting while he's getting out. I mean, it was just, it was the grossest thing ever. <laughs> I'm like, this is the worst worst flight I've ever been on in my life. And so, you know, so I get my bag. I got to go get my connection. And while I'm walking, I'm thinking, because the because the older lady was like, well, I don't know. He hasn't had like a stomach bug. I don't know what's going on with him. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we both had a ham and cheese sandwich. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, no, I cannot have food poisoning. Like, like this isn't going to work. And so, I, you know, I go and I sit at my gate, I board the plane, I sit down, 
get my laptop, maybe I'll get some work done this time. And I start typing away and I kind of start feeling a little queasy, you know? And I'm like, maybe it's just in my head. I think it's just in my head. You know, like when you, it's just, uh, I just need the, you know, mental battle here, you know? And then I start like getting sweaty, kind of clammy. And I'm like, maybe it's not in my head. Like, this is not good. So I'm like, I need to put my laptop away because I don't want to ruin like my laptop. So I, I, I put that away and then I know, and like I'm, I'm digging through the front pocket thingy where the barf bags are and there's no barf bag. I'm like, the one time that I actually need the thing, it's not there. So I'm like, um, um, and that's when I see, really started to feel like this is not good. So so I stand up and I just make a beeline to the back of the plane, right? And uh, there's this, there's this, uh, the, the, the ladies back there and um, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm kind of feeling nauseous. Do you have any bags? And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, so she gets me a bag and um, she's like, hey, welcome to the club. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, this girl right here just vomited. And she's sitting in the back, you know, kind of passed out in the back. I'm like, oh man, I can't get away from this stuff. What in the world? And she's like, and so, and so the, the stewardess was like, well, you know, this could be a great way for you guys to meet and like you hold her hair. And I said, I, I, no, I don't think so. I, I'm taken, but whatever. Uh, so I was like, you guys are weird. And so I was, there's nothing romantic about holding her hair. I've been there, done that. It's not, no, it doesn't do it for me. And um, so I'm just standing back. So I felt a little bit better standing up, right? For some reason. And so I just, I'm standing in the back of the plane for like the next 45 minutes. I'm just standing there. And finally, like after a little while, I just got a little bit, not frustrated, but just I, I, I don't know, I had a bit of a revelation because I'm thinking, great, it's a stupid ham and cheese sandwich, you know, I'm going to be, I'm not even going to be able to preach tomorrow, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And, um, and, and, and God reminded me of the scripture uh, where in the Gospels, Jesus said that whoever believed on him would trample on serpents um, and drink poison and it wouldn't make them sick. And I thought, man, if, 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 if a Christian can drink poison, and not get sick. I mean, surely like a ham and cheese that's kind of off in Detroit. I mean, I get it that it's probably similar to poison, but it's not, I mean, it's not arsenic, you know, or anything. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. Uh, and so that's, it just, it just got me thinking. I was just like, wait a minute. Like, why am I just living as if I'm not a follower of Jesus? Why am I living as if I'm cursed? Like, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. I know I'm not cursed for eternity, but why am I accepting this, this thing here and now? Why am, I just, why am I just laying down and being like, well, eating a ham and cheese sandwich, that's what happens. You know, like, it's almost like I'm not even saved. Like, I'm not even a Christian. When Jesus said those who follow him would drink poison and not get sick. I'm standing there, and I just started thinking, what? This is not even poison. And I'm getting sick. Like, this is ridiculous. This is, I have a promise from God to be able to drink stinking poison and walk on snakes and stuff. And, and I'm, and I'm just accepting the sickness from a ham and cheese. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it doesn't speak to you, but it just spoke to me a little bit, just about just this switch that went in my head. It's not like I became super spiritual and started, you know, just, I started praying. It just, it was a switch. It was like, wait a minute, that scripture where Jesus said those who believed in him would drink poison and not get sick, that scripture was written about me. It wasn't written about somebody out there who believes in him in Uganda somewhere, but that was written about me. Like that's, that's, that's me, I believe in him. I follow him. I've given my life to him. I'm not cursed anymore. I don't have to live as if I am. 
And so, I, I don't know, my, my prayer wasn't so much just begging God to heal me. It was more of just, God, I receive what you're offering. I wonder how much God's actually offering us that we don't even receive because, well, we're not worthy, because, well, I ate a ham and cheese, because whatever, whatever excuse you build in there about yourself, why God can do anything for them but not you, can do anything in that situation but not this situation, I wonder what we're not receiving. It's on offer. It's written. I mean, what else does he have to do? He wrote a book and gave it to us. Uh, it's right there, but we're just, we don't receive it because we don't really believe it applies to us. It applies to other people, maybe, at other times in history. But no, what if all of the promises of God apply to you? What if... In 1 John, when he said, whoever confesses their sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if that applies to you? Like really you. And you don't have to keep getting saved over and over and over again. You can confess, come into agreement with God and remove all of the shame of your past in one moment and in the same moment have a complete cleansing of your heart for here and now. What if, what if that was written about you? What if, what if, what if God had your face in his mind when, 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 when John was penning those words through, through the unction of the Holy Spirit? What if it applies to us, the sons of Jeconiah, the daughters of mistake, the, the sons of failure, the receivers of a genealogy of mistakes and arrogance and sin and depravity and immorality and addiction. What if his, his word applies to us? We just have to receive it. We just have to take it in our cursed hands and believe that his blessing, the blessing that we're holding, is greater than the curse that we received from our past. And that tomorrow's different because of what we received today. And so I did, I did that. I just said, God, I, I just receive healing for my body. I don't think, I mean, I, I know you eat bad stuff, bad things happen, but, but I, I don't, I think anything can happen. I don't think it has to be normal. I don't think I have to be normal. I don't think my body has to be normal. I mean, because technically you eat McDonald's, you know. <laughs> A lot of bad, I mean, you know, cancer, like, happens. I mean, you, you poison your body enough. Yeah, but we've seen God heal from cancer. Not because people just decided to get the perfect diet, whatever that is. I mean, we keep getting, they, they change it on us every five years. But, you know, uh, it's like, God, we don't have to be normal. It's not, the, it's, anything can happen. God can do anything. God can heal in a moment just because you believe, because you believe it's for you and you receive it. That's true physically, that's true spiritually, that's true mentally, that's true emotionally. That's true in every aspect of our life. What is the, the old hymn? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we will not carry everything to God in prayer. The needless pain of believing we're cursed and living as if we are. The needless weight that's on our shoulders of believing we're cursed and living as if we are. When really all we have to do 
is received by faith what is on offer, what God has purchased and what he is presenting to us. We could never produce, but it must be received.